Former Secretary of State John Kerry is slated to be in St. Louis on October 1st to make a speech at Powell Hall. He'll detail his experiences as a Vietnam veteran, a U.S. senator, and the nation's top diplomat, and how Americans should respond to turbulent political times. Ahead of his Maryville St. Louis Speaker Series speech, Kerry spoke with me about the uproar over President Donald Trump's communications with the president of Ukraine and how Democrats can compete in crucial Midwestern swing states. I think you have to kind of be there to campaign and show people that you don't have horns, that your positions are very much in sync with their dreams and their hopes. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, and this is a special edition of Politically Speaking. The big national story this week is the escalating possibility that Trump could get impeached by the U.S. House. And for the most part, reaction in Missouri is breaking along partisan lines. For instance, the two Democrats that represent Missouri in the U.S. House, Lacey Klain and Emanuel Cleaver, accused Trump of abusing his power in asking Ukraine's president to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden. But Missouri Republicans are defending the president, contending, among other things, that the push for impeachment detracts from pressing issues. That's the view of Governor Mike Parson, who received Trump's endorsement ahead of his bid for a full four-year term in 2020. You know what? I I think Washington, D.C. is a mess, is what I actually think. And I think when you're starting to do an impeachment process, when you've not even had any hearings or any type of of due process, I want to say, is a little premature to even be talking those things. It's unfortunate we're talking about that and we're not talking about trade agreements. We're not talking about things that really help everyday people's lives. We're not talking about infrastructure. We're not talking about workforce. And maybe they'd be good for them to take a little book out of our playbook, a page out of our playbook here in Missouri. I'm mentioning this because I interviewed Kerry before House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced her support for an impeachment inquiry and before a non-verbatim transcript and a whistleblower's report was released to the public. But before launching into other topics, I asked Kerry about what the American people should know about the Trump-Ukraine situation, especially since he was Secretary of State when Biden was the point person for dealing with the country. Well, first of all, Vice President Biden was carrying out official policy of the entire administration at the behest, at the request of the professional uh, diplomats who were willing to get rid of corruption in Ukraine. And the request was that the prosecutor was not prosecuting major corruption. He was not going after uh, some of the oligarchs who stood in the way of reform. And so all, the whole administration was working to leverage the departure of the prosecutor and the uh, removal of a major bloc to dealing with corruption. In the case of President Trump, evidently, he allegedly has, he had says he raised the name of Biden and he called him. And it appears that repeatedly he was leveraging United States taxpayer money Uh, and the safety and security of the country against his desire to get the president to become his opposition research arm. And and that is an abuse of power on its face, if that is what happened. So I think it's critical that the uh, United States Congress properly find out exactly what happened, get all the relative documents and transcripts and Make a decision that the American people need to know that the president of the United States is not abusing power uh, 
by putting a country at risk for personal political reasons. Well, moving on to some broader questions, because you're going to be speaking in St. Louis in a couple of weeks. I would like to know what was the most surprising thing that you learned from your transition from being an elected official to becoming Secretary of State? I was really <clears throat> disturbed by the levels of corruption that we uh, were finding in various places, which contributed to chaos, anarchy, extremism, uh, all kinds of uh, internal failed state problems. One of the things that you, you did that I think was relatively unprecedented for a United States leader was meet with the foreign minister of Iran. I think you were the first U.S. official to meet with somebody from Iran face-to-face. -face. Well, the meeting with uh, the foreign minister of Iran, indeed, was the first time that a United States Secretary of State had met with the foreign minister of Iran in 40 years. Uh, it was our view that it was uh, long overdue that if a country is threatening a region and a country is presenting problems, uh, sometimes you may be able to solve some of the problems or begin to create a pathway to diplomacy <clears throat> in personal interaction. And so that there would be no misinterpretation, no uh, missing of any of the nuances of a sentence or any kind of attitude or policy, we thought it was very important to face-to-face -face that conversation and explore whether or not there was a possibility for a genuine path to dealing with their nuclear potential of a nuclear weapon. Uh, it became a key moment in our diplomacy. It did open the door to our ability to be able to schedule future meetings and to understand a kind of uh, a, a, a basic a groundwork of the approach to any negotiation. Uh, the foreign minister was educated here in America. He went to Colorado University. Uh, he had been 10 years at the United Nations in New York. So his English was uh, impeccable, and uh, he spoke even almost American uh, slang. Uh, and he was able to convey the attitude and approach of the Iranians in, in a very sophisticated and thoughtful way. So we found it productive, and it did open up the opportunity to be able to guarantee that Iran was not going to be able to get a nuclear weapon. Uh, or at least, if they were going to try to, we would know about it. And that was the critical element of the negotiation. I'd be interested to hear your, your, your take or your, your observation now about the, the tensions now between Iran and Saudi Arabia, because before this Ukraine-Trump situation happened, I think that was top of mind as far as foreign policy situations. And I, I think given your experience dealing with the two countries, I would be interested to hear uh, how this came about and what, if anything, the United States should do as far as getting involved or mediating this, these hostilities. Well, it's a, it's a historic, long hostility. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, Iran is Persian Shia and Saudi Arabia is Sunni Arab. And there has always been a great tension between them uh, because the Persian, uh, the Iranians, see themselves as the protector of this minority, the Shia. And that is a battle that goes back to 1200 uh, AD uh, to 682, actually. It goes back to 682 to a, 
assassination that took place in the desert when uh, the successor of the prophet, Muhammad, was assassinated and killed and all of his cohorts were killed. And for years, there's been this tension uh, within Islam over the rightful track of uh, leadership. And so that's part of it. The other part of it is just territorial and regional with respect to tribal influence and uh, a sense of threat that comes from both the Moran has been engaged in activities in the region that we don't like, and they don't like. Iran has been supporting the Houthi in their insurrection in Yemen, arming them. Iran has been arming Hezbollah, their, their, their sort of wing of, uh, uh, of the uh, Lebanese opposition to Israel's existence, and it's very profound. They have you know, thousands of missiles that have been transferred there, uh, aimed at Israel, which remains a threat. And we, we, all, we, we all share, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, we all share deep concern and opposition to this kind of activity. So Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran are uh, at each other's throats. It's very tribal as well as ethnic uh, and deeply historic. Uh, so we have to... Uh, uh, obviously stand with our friends, which we do, and, but we also have an obligation to peace and to regional stability to try to find a way to see if we can resolve these kinds of issues. Uh, this region, the Mideast, is the least, uh, least economic and socially integrated region in the world. And there's a reason for the United States to try to stabilize and, and address the questions of uh, the regional security. We'll be right back right after this message. You know, it could be argued that your 2004 presidential race was really jump-started by your victory in Iowa, and you made a very concerted and, and partially successful effort to win a lot of Midwestern states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. As somebody with this track record, and given that whoever is the Democratic presidential nominee is going to make a big push to win in the Midwest, what advice would you have for the eventual nominee to make sure that they're competitive in this critical region from a political standpoint? Well, I think you got to listen to people and be there and talk to people. I mean, to me, it's really critical. I don't think the divides are as big as a lot of people suggest. People are deeply concerned about jobs. They're, they're deeply concerned about uh, education and uh, the opportunity to uh, be able to let their families uh, have their share of the American dream. And I, I think that's a, you know, the people also want the environment to be respected, other, uh, the Second Amendment and so forth. I think it's very important for the nominee to go to these places, to uh, listen to people and talk to them and explain their positions and help people to not feel that it's uh, there's a uh, stereotype that you want to avoid. And, and you want people to be able to know firsthand for themselves what you're thinking rather than uh, having it framed and shaped by negative advertising and by... Uh, you know, distortion and so forth, which inevitably happens in a lot of campaigns. So I would urge uh, a nominee to 
go out there and be as competitive as possible in all of these places. I think that's really critical. I wish I could have done more. I wish we'd had more time. Um, I think I won the nomination more or less, or we knew I was going to have the nomination somewhere in late March. But then you have to put together an entire national campaign in a matter of months. Uh, it's very little time from April, May, June, July, August, September. But, you know, boom, it goes by. And, and I hope we get a nominee as fast as possible. I think that would be very helpful. What were your, your memories of campaigning in Missouri? And from your experience, the state has moved definitely into the Republican column after being a swing state. Um, do you have any hope that a state like Missouri can become more competitive? Or is it going to be the focus on the bigger states that Trump won that, and that you won that's going to be more paramount on uh, the Democratic nominee's mind? Well, you know, I would hope that Missouri is a state that we could really get back to being competitive in and winning. I mean, I, you know, it's the show me state and you've got to go out there and show folks that who you are and how you're going to work for them and what you're going to do. It seems to me that uh, we shouldn't not be. I mean, I, I, I think that, um, you know, uh, it's a, uh, I think you have to kind of be there to campaign and show people that you don't have horns, that your positions are very much in sync with their dreams and their hopes, uh, and that you're going to stand up and fight for American values and for the nation and, uh, and, and restore our position in the world as a leader, which I think everybody in Missouri cares about. I got friends out there. I've been out there many times. Um, and I, I just don't think there's the, this division that automatically ought to say, well, we're going to vote one way or the other. We have serious problems in the country now, and we need to get everybody on board to deal with some of these problems. Uh, I think the solutions are available for jobs, to provide millions of more jobs, to be able to uh, improve our infrastructure. Uh, and to uh, strengthen the country as a, in a whole. And uh, I would urge our nominee to uh, uh, to be front and center present in Missouri more than just a, on a token basis. Uh, you know, I think Claire McCaskill represented the state and the Senate and narrowly lost the race, but lost it uh, as an example of, of an historic willingness for people to listen carefully and to, uh, you know, uh, vote accordingly. And I would hope that that listening process would become much more intense all across the country because we've got to revitalize our democracy and we've got to strengthen ourselves by listening to each other and finding compromise on any number of different issues. What can people expect to, to hear from you when you come to St. Louis in a couple of weeks? Well, you know, I'm a guy who served in the military, served my country, is proud of uh, years of service as a prosecutor, uh, going after organized crime and doing major things that uh, enforce the law. I believe in rule of law. I was in the Senate for years and did a lot of things to uh, uh, help people all across the country to deal with internal city problems, with rural problems, farmers, others. So I hope, uh, you know, what I'm going to talk about is how we get back to working together, uh, and what solutions really exist for critical problems. I will talk a little about, uh, I want to share with people thoughts about climate change, because 
we need to think about that in terms of uh, jobs and competition and the American leadership role. Uh, and it's a very serious issue. But I don't think people need to be scared of it. I think we need to grab it and run with it because it means jobs. It means better health. It means a better future, better energy. Uh, and uh, their whole, you know, there's a lot of uh, miscommunication uh, in our politics today. And I look forward to kind of trying to make sense of some of it and answer a lot of folks' questions about uh, what we need to do about critical things. I want to thank Secretary Kerry for his time. He will be speaking at 8 p.m. on October 1st at Powell Hall. I also want to thank St. Louis on the Air's Laura Hamden, Emily Woodbury, and Alex Hoyer for their help with this interview. Fred Ehrlich is the editor for St. Louis Public Radio's political team. Shula Newman is St. Louis Public Radio's executive editor. And John Larson is our audio engineer. I'm Jason Rosenbaum. And thank you for listening to Politically Speaking. I've got another confession to make. I'm your fool. Everyone's got their chains to 